Consider this evening the last chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31, and the first chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Let's bow together in prayer as we begin. We are delighted to confess you, Lord and God, our precious Creator and Savior and Consummator. We bow before you in the acknowledgement of our dependence upon your fatherly care, the redeeming grace of your dear Son, and the wonderful indwelling of the breath of your Spirit. We cry out to you to help us in our frailty and weakness, our doubts and unbelief. We cry out to you to provide the sufficiency of heaven itself as the real foundation of our life, not just our destiny, but our life even now as citizens of heaven, as Paul encourages us. We also pray that you will help us think your thoughts after you as we think about this part of your inspired word. We want to understand what you have revealed, Lord, so that we may understand you better and your dear Son by the gift of your Spirit, whom to know is life eternal. And so, as we wait upon you, you draw us into your own chamber, into your own throne room, and display the glory of the kingdom of heaven to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Our narrator does not surprise us with the duplicate accounts of the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. By now, we are used to his twofold way of unraveling or unfolding his narrative. We may fathom his literary motivation by noticing his change in genre in 2 Samuel 1. The place where he changes by switching from narrative history to elegiac lament or poetry. He wants to climax his double accounts of the demise of Saul with a prosodic tribute 
of the sweet singer, the psalmist par excellence of Israel. He will feature David's poetic gift once again. He will double it, you see, in 2 Samuel 22 and 23. So our author draws us through the two accounts of the death of Saul and Jonathan in order to climax his narrative of David's rise, his upward spiral with the poetry of the feelings. Yes, even Hebrew poetry flows out of the feelings, the feelings of the heart. And David's heart, it feels very often as God's own heart, for God has revealed his own heart to David's. So one of the reasons for the double narrative is the display of poetic artistry, poetic drama, poetic revelation, poetic affection. That poetic conclusion to David's reflection on the career of Saul and his beloved friend Jonathan. But poetry aside, we must also attempt to fathom the twofold narrative account of Saul and Jonathan on Gilboa. What is our narrator attempting to show us? Is he confused? Is he once more ill-served by a later redactor who contradicts his original account in 1 Samuel 31 with a different version in 2 Samuel 1? Liberal commentators underscore these apparent tensions and contradictions in their deconstruction of the text to a political agenda. They argue that a political ideology has shaped the two accounts, and therefore we are dealing not with true history, but with political spin. David appearing in a particularly positive light, according to the liberal reconstruction of their deconstruction. If we reject this misreading of the text, not only because of our doctrine of divine inspiration of Scripture, still inspiration works upon the creative mind and the art of the writer. Our narrator is moved along or carried along by the Spirit of God so as to profoundly fathom the drama which is reflected in the one account, 1 Samuel 31, and the other account, 2 Samuel 1. 
our narrator's literary genius is deeply affected by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. And so I put the question to you at the outset of our examination of these passages this evening. Why do you think we have two accounts of the death of Saul and Jonathan? And the voice comes back from the audience, we never thought of it. And now the voice comes back from the pulpit, you must think about it. Because it's in the book. And so now as you conjure upon that duplication, what conceivably, as you ponder, could explain the twofold narrative? Bob? There's less information in chapter 31. And so it doesn't give you the full picture that you get in chapter, the second Samuel chapter 1. Bob is suggesting that we get a more complete picture in the second narrative. All right? So far, Bob is at the head of the class. Does anyone else like to suggest another possible explanation for why we have two accounts? You have nothing to lose except Bob's friendship. (laughs) And maybe whatever small reputation you already think you have as a biblical interpreter. Rich, fools rush in. Okay. Take a stab at it. The Amalekite was lying to promote himself. Rich is suggesting that the Amalekite is lying in order to promote himself. All right. Now, we have Bob against Rich, or maybe not really. But here is another uh, contribution in explanation. Art, you look pensive. You were pensive. It was just ready to come out of your mouth. Go ahead. Well, the second passage makes an additional point, and that is the uh, importance of uh, revering God's pointing. Art is suggesting that the second narrative makes the point of uh, revering God's appointed king. We're getting a variety of suggestions here, and I certainly don't want to cut off Heinz 57 varieties, Margaret. Well, the chapter 31 of 1 Samuel is an account of, of his death. And the first chapter of 2 Samuel is what David was told about his death. Margaret is suggesting that the first account in chapter 31 is what happened. And the second account in chapter two, uh, chapter 1 of 2 Samuel is what David was told happened. Okay. Any other possibilities that you would like to present? Yes, Robert? More of the opinion, more like Bob's, in that the Gospels do the same thing, where they repeat certain incidences with fill-in details. This is the kind of thing like uh, lawyers such as Simon Greenleaf would latch on to to prove the authenticity of the narrative. 
Okay, Robert is suggesting because we have an expanded narrative in 2 Samuel 1, we have a further confirmation of authenticity of the story in 1 Samuel 31. Ben? Ben is suggesting that maybe there's a time lag between the two books, and therefore we had gathered up, what, more of the story, uh, something like that, Ben? Or have invented a different story? It, it's opened up, okay. All right, well, uh, none of your reputations was at stake. I appreciate all of your reflections and comments. And now let's take a look at what I think. (laughs) All right, let's begin, first of all, with the map for geographical location on the second page of your handout. The left-hand map gives you the scene of the battle on Mount Gilboa and the movement of the factions that are involved in that uh, climactic uh, conflict. Our narrator begins his account of the death of Saul with a distance shot. That is, his camera is panning from a distance in verse 1, the broad sweep of his camera catching both armies, both armies in action on Mount Gilboa, wide-angle lens gathering in the whole scene from afar. Then he moves in for close-up in verse 2. A closer look as he captures the Philistines bearing down on Saul and his sons, three of whom are killed as the enemy presses hard upon them. So the wide-angle lens catching the broad sweep, and now... He's focusing his camera more narrowly upon Saul and his sons. The final close-up, the most uh, immediate close-up, is the detail about Saul's death in verses 3 to 5. So here's his zoom lens coming right down at last to Saul himself before our narrator's camera pulls back. Pulls back once again for a shot from afar, which features Saul, his three sons, and his armor bearer in verse 6. And the final distance shot, the wide-angle pan lens again, verse 7, surveys Israel north of the valley of Jezreel, as well as a portion of the Transjordan, an expanse of territory now occupied by the victorious Philistines. Israel has not only lost her king, she has lost a substantial part of her northern territory. The Philistines have become an occupational army and force in northern Israel and portions of the Transjordan. The sweep, then, of our narrator's camera, panning the distance and the close-up, dramatically captures the magnitude of the defeat at Gilboa and its consequences. The chiastic structure of these first seven verses 
detailed by J.P. Fockelman, reinforces this mirror paradigm. Distance to zoom close up, back to distance perspective once more, and I have provided in your handout a modified abridgment of Fockelman's diagram so that you can see how the structure of those seven verses actually gives you that wide angle, more narrow, zooming in, and then breaking back to the wide angle in verse 7 once more. And it is even reinforced by the parallel lines which match one another as you move towards the center of that chiasm. Our narrator also enables us to integrate these events with the unfolding drama of his story, the now, which begins verse 1 of chapter 31, may be translated, meanwhile, meanwhile. And it causes us to realize, well, what does it cause us to realize? Meanwhile, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. In those old westerns that used to be said, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Well, what was happening back at the ranch? Or back wherever. Usually something despicable. In this case, is it something despicable? While the Philistines are operating on Mount Gilboa, meanwhile, what is out, what is going on elsewhere? Bitch? David is fighting the Amalekites. Correct. So, notice the synchronization that the narrator uses here with his introductory adverb. Meanwhile, while David is delivering Israel from the enemy Amalekites, Saul is being defeated by the enemy Philistines. So <clears throat> David is not only removed from the scene of Saul's death, but in being removed, <clears throat> he is delivering Israel as Saul himself is failing to do. <clears throat> and so David saves his captive people while Saul is killed with many others and a large portion of Israel is captured by the Philistines. Saul's sin brings dramatic consequences to himself. His sin brings dramatic consequence to himself, to his sons, and to many others in Israel who die as a result of his own disobedience. Personal sin often reaches out into the distance to touch many more than the individual sinner themselves. It is certainly true tragically here in the case of Saul. Verse 2 provides the names of the sons of Saul who were slain on Mount Gilboa, and it reminds us of Saul's family. Yes, he was a father. He had a wife. 
and he had children. So we ask, what was the name of Saul's wife? And she is named only once in the scriptures. In 1 Samuel 14, verse 50, her name is Ahinoam. Ahinoam. Saul had daughters. He had sons and daughters. What were the names of his daughters? Name one of them. Michael is one of them. Was she the oldest daughter? No, she is not the oldest daughter. What's the name of the oldest daughter? Michael is the youngest daughter. What's the name of the oldest daughter? There are two daughters. Nope. Mirav. Mirav, M-E-R-A-B. Remember, she was first offered to David and then taken away as Saul exercised his manipulative power. And then Michael was given to him. Now, his sons, we know Jonathan, whose name is listed there in verse 2. He's well known to us from previous narratives. I remind you once again that I see Jonathan as the John the Baptist of the Old Testament, the one who goes before the rightful king. Aminadav, who is mentioned here, is also mentioned in the genealogy of Saul's family in 1 Chronicles 8. Verse 33 and First Chronicles 9, verse 39. Malkishua is listed in First Samuel 14, verse 49, as well as in First Chronicles 8, 33 and 9, 39. Now there is an Ishvi, Ishvi in First Samuel 14, 49 whom some equate with Abinadav here in this verse. In any event, at least one son, Ishbosheth, or Eshbal, Eshbal, is not present at Gilboa, and he will be set up as a competitive puppet king in the Transjordanian region of Mahanaim by Abner. Saul's general-in-chief, and we'll meet him over the next couple of weeks. But he is not present in this battle, perhaps because he was too young for military service. And so as a young boy or a young teenager or a young adolescent under 20 years of age, he was exempt from being on that battlefield with his brothers and his fathers. Numbers chapter 26, verse 2, suggests that you needed to be 20 years of age in order to go to war. Whether that mosaic principle was still in force during this uh, Saulide and Davidic era is subject to question, but nonetheless, it is at least one verse in the Bible that provides some guidance on this issue, and that is a possible explanation of why Ishbosheth was not on the field and died with his siblings. Saul, badly wounded, verse 3, pleads with his armor bearer to kill him. There is an irony here. 
a somewhat graphic irony. Who was Saul's former armor bearer? David. In 1 Samuel 16, 21, after David is anointed by Samuel and comes to Saul to play the liar in order to quiet him, Saul makes him his armor bearer. And that armor bearer would not do what? He would not kill Saul. You see the irony. Nor will this one. Nor will this one. This armor bearer drawn into the circle of David. Why will he not kill Saul? I didn't hear that. The Lord's anointed. <clears throat> That's not what the text says. What does the text say? He was greatly afraid. Now, why was he afraid, Pete? Now your answer is correct. Why was he afraid? He would not put forth his hand against the Lord's anointed, the very same thing that David fears, namely the sin of touching the Lord's anointed with death. You may remember David's pang of conscience in chapter 24, verse 5, when he was so close that he could have killed Saul and was encouraged to do so. And his heart smote within him because he realized how close he was to breaking that taboo against destroying the Lord's Messiah, Mashiach, anointed, Hebrew term for anointed. Well, the question of Saul's suicide places that ethical matter before us. In a culture increasingly embracing active pursuit of suicide by medical means, active euthanasia, in Western civilization where this is increasingly endorsed, encouraged, and perhaps one day even forced upon victims, Christian community is compelled to weigh this issue biblically and practically. It must be weighed eschatologically. With the center of life on the Lord our God and his beloved Son, our Savior, as well as by heaven's own Holy Spirit of life, everlasting life. The Christian church has historically protected and preserved life, caring, nurturing, palliating human life, even in its sufferings. Suicide has not been a biblical or Christian option, historically speaking. It is the Lord who gives, and it is the Lord who takes away, as Job reminds us. 
Saul takes the prerogative of God into his own hand. Saul takes away his life by a voluntary or willful choice. He freely chooses to commit suicide, which is a continuing part of his downward spiral, his rebellion against God, even his rebellion against the life God has given him, the life God has given him even as it ebbs out in his own death throes. He chooses death by his own hand. He chooses self-murder. He chooses suicide. This cannot be excused in Saul's case any more than it can be excused in the case of Judas Iscariot. But can suicide ever be excused? I believe that in the case of insanity, temporary or permanent insanity, yes, it may be excused. Non compos mentis is the Latin phrase that covers this ethical Situation. Does anyone know what that phrase means? Not in their right mind. Not in their composed or right mind. That's a literal translation of the Latin phrase. A person not in their right mind. A person out of their mind person temporarily or permanently insane, even Christians, may take their own life when literally driven out of their mind with pain, with depression, with mental illness, with insanity. The famous case of William Cooper, the hymn writer and poet, is a classic example and a case book study of this issue. Driven to the brink of suicide by extreme mental depression and even apparent temporary madness, Cooper was held back by his Christian friends, his most precious being John Newton, the former slave trader, become Christian convert and hymn writer, writer of Amazing Grace. Once again, gives me the opportunity to commend that movie, Amazing Grace, by Ewan Griffith, was made several years ago about the life of William Wilberforce, where you see Newton's impact upon Wilberforce after he left the company of William Cooper and moved to London. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, Newton uh, was a great friend of Cooper's and uh, prevailed upon him to restrain his suicidal instincts. So that his mind, that is Cooper's mind, was restored in measure by rest and by loving care. But we have here an undoubted case study of a Christian who would have committed suicide in a state of extreme spiritual depression and temporary insanity. In fact, he tried to commit suicide a number of times and failed.
Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. William Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. William Cooper's great Oni Oni hymn, hymns he wrote in the company of John Newton. Though vine nor fig tree, neither their wanted fruit shall bear. Though all the field should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abideth. His praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. The only hymns of William Cooper are some of the most beautiful poems ever put to music, written out of his spiritual state of discouragement and exaltation and joy. He plunged himself beneath that fountain filled with blood. And God, in his mercy and grace, restrained him from destroying his life, not only by the intercession of his own Christian friends and companions, but also by the intercession of his own spirit. And yet, he was on the brink, and he even attempted it. And so, we face this classic case of a man who gives every evidence of being in Christ Jesus and yet uh, being abandoned to despair and depression and suicidal instincts. In verse 7, we note another irony in this passage. What David had attempted to prevent in chapter 27 albeit in Israel's southern region, occurs here in chapter 31. The Philistines occupy Israelite territory. David had used those raids against the Philistine enclaves in the south in order to preserve and protect Israelite territory. Saul cannot. Ironically, David succeeds Saul miserably fails. Verse 8, the phrase Saul and his three sons is a duplicate from verse 6, as you will note. And thus, verse 6 and verse 8 provide a framing device around verse 7, the result of their death. The phrase Saul and his sons is duplicated In verse 2 and verse 7, once again, our narrator using these parallel or duplicate phrases in order to underscore or emphasize 
the unfolding drama of his narrative. Verse 9 details the humiliation and degradation of Saul by the enemy. His head is cut off. This narrative does not indicate what became of the head. Does anyone know where it ended up? His head was taken to the temple of Dagon. <clears throat> Who is Dagon? The fish god. Who does he belong to? He is the chief god of the Philistine nation. Correct. The chief god of the Philistine nation plays a large part in Samson's death, the temple of Dagon that Samson pulls down in his own death. First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 10, is a parallel narrative of 1 Samuel 31. And it is in that account that we learn that Saul's head was taken in triumph to the temple of their chief deity. His weapons were sent to the temple of Ashtaroth. Who is Ashtaroth? Pardon? And that's Ashkelon. Who's Ashtaroth? Anita? She is a fertility goddess, correct. She is both a Canaanite and a Philistine fertility goddess. She is sometimes regarded as the consort of Dagon and of Baal. And as a fertility goddess, she is worshipped with sacred sexuality, sacred prostitutes, both male and female. So his weapons are taken to the temple of the fertility goddess after being paraded as trophies of war around the land of the Philistines, and his body is tacked up on a wall at Bashan in verse 10. Now you'll notice... From your other map in your handout, uh, the location of Bashan, which is uh, contiguous to the Valley of Jezreel and Mount Gilboa, but far away from Jabesh Gilead, at least a night overnight's journey from Jabesh Gilead. Why do the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead come to take Saul's body? Yes. Yes, and what was the name of the king of the Ammonites from whom he saved them? Okay. Very good for remembering the Ammonites. You get an A for that. I'll give you an A plus if you remember the. Does anyone remember the name of that king of the Ammonites? Just blurt it out. You get the A plus automatically. Nahash, correct. Nahash in chapter 11. Nahash had come to the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead and threatened them that he would gouge out their eyes uh, unless they found a deliverer. And so uh, here you notice that in verse 13, the inhabitants of Jabesh fast seven days. Why do they fast seven days after recovering the body of Saul? No. They were not unclean. In that incident, when uh, 
Nahash threatened the inhabitants of Jabesh with gouging out their eyes, he gave them seven days to find a deliverer. And what deliverer did they find? Saul. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead honor Saul with seven days fasting, even as they had been given seven days to find him as their deliverer. So once again, the duplication of the seven days in the narrative recalls a benevolent act on Saul's part and the uh, remembrance of that benevolent act on the part of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. They're not only showing honor to taking Saul's body down, but they are also remembering the uh, benevolent act of deliverance that he gave to them at the outset of his career. Well, after retrieving Saul's body and the body of his sons, after burning the bodies, they retrieve the bones from the ashes and bury them and fast seven days, as we noted. The people of Jabesh Gilead bookend the career of Saul, son of Kish. They bookend the career of Saul. In his first battle, Saul acts on their behalf, while in his last battle, they act on his behalf. Jabesh Gilead is the inclusio around the career of Saul's military prowess. And burning the bodies of Saul and his sons raises yet another issue, does it not? It raises the issue of cremation or reducing a body to ashes instead of embalming it prior to burial or interment. And so what do you think of cremation? The inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead obviously think of it as a positive way of disposing of a body. The bones were left. But but today you reduce everything to ashes, including the bones, correct? In the crematorium, correct? So are you arguing for uh, <coughs> Jabesh Gilead? We'll, we'll, we'll burn the flesh, but take the bones. Ben? <coughs> That is the common objection to cremation. It seems to object to the whole body of resurrection. And yet, in how many thousands upon thousands of battlefields, in how many cities, including destruction of Jerusalem and Samaria, how many bodies have been burned up to ashes? Are these bodies not going to be raised up at the final resurrection? They had no choice. So if you have a choice, then you get a resurrected body. If you don't have a choice, then you get resurrected ashes. Robert? Uh, It seems to me that the question is motive, because uh, I have no doubt God raised up even ashes if he wants to. But uh, the flip side of that, I think during the Roman Empire, wasn't uh, cremation done deliberately 
as uh, uh, a reaction against uh, biblical prophecy? Not to my knowledge. It was done in the Greco-Roman period as a way of uh, keeping contagion from spreading. It was also done as a way of honoring nobility. The notion that the body would raise was sneered upon by a Greek and Roman philosophy. It's one of the reasons that the early Christian apologists in the second century argued for the continuity of personality in terms of the resurrection of the body, particularly Jesus' resurrection. But the question here is whether or not it is appropriate to reduce dust to dust and ashes to ashes by fire. Margaret? Judgment and fire as judgment in judgment? He does. He does. But does it necessarily mean that to reduce what is going to go to ashes ultimately anyway, to reduce it sooner rather than later, is therefore unacceptable in Christian circles? Well, you are left to ponder that. And as my former mentor, John Gerstner, would say, what's your problem? It's sooner rather than later. Because if you put the body even embalmed, unless you've got Egyptian embalmers, and wrap it up in dry heat, low humidity pyramids, uh, even the embalmed body is going to dissolve into dust. And that is what is going to be reconstituted on the day of resurrection. How many millions upon millions of bodies in coffins are now already dust and ashes and are going to be reconstituted on the return of Christ and raised up either to glory or to damnation? And so I'll leave you conjuring what my vaunted professor said. What's your problem? It's sooner dust and ashes rather than later. God's going to raise it up anyway, therefore. All right, now, I'm not making any dogmatic statements on this matter, uh, but I am suggesting that uh, we, we don't reverence the burial of the body in the sense that we think that that's exactly what's going to come back out of the grave the same way we put it in. It's going to have to be changed, 1 Corinthians 15, in a wonderful way. And therefore, if it has been dissolved into ashes already because it's been in the ground for 1,600 years or it's Calvin's case over uh, 480 years, 450 years, uh, then, you know, it's, it's still going to be reconstituted and resurrected dust. Okay, it'll be our body. It's got all our DNA on the ashes, okay? So that's our body that's coming back, going to be reanimated. But as I say, uh, this issue here for which there does not seem to be any condemnation. There doesn't seem to be any judgment against Jabesh for doing this. And in fact, there doesn't seem to be any blanket condemnation in scriptures, including the prophet Amos and the book of Leviticus. And when Achan himself was burned and his family was burned with fire, you could say that was a judgment of God. That nonetheless, uh, there it is. They were reduced to ashes. Uh, Okay, so the Bible doesn't seem to have a blanket statement on this, and consequently, I won't be dogmatic. I leave you to the liberty 
of being embalmed and placed in a coffin and so on. And you can leave me to my liberty of being cremated and put in an urn. Go ahead, Rich. Uh, yeah, if we're thinking in that broad sense, yes, that is correct. In other words, the reduction reduction of the flesh to dust and ashes is a product of the curse. That is correct. But now we're asking the question: Are we, you know, do we have the ethical liberty? Is it proper for us to do that and uh, still uh, hold on to our Christian testimony to the resurrection of the body? And of course, when we realize how many bodies have been reduced to ashes in other other ways, and they're going to be raised up, uh, I think that uh, does help temper that a little bit. Kay. That's a good observation. Kay has suggested that the Jabesh, the inhabitants of Jabesh, burned them, burned them so that they couldn't be further desecrated. And that's quite possible. Quite possible. Were there any other comments or observations on this point? All right, well, uh, I, I leave you to your liberty. <laughs> now our narrator provides a second account of the death of Saul through the report of an Amalekite in 2 Samuel 1, 1 to 16. We raised this matter for discussion earlier this evening, and now we want to ascertain our narrator's motive for a second account. First of all, David's location. Where is he here in 2 Samuel 1? He is in Ziglag. And once again, we're reminded that while David is away to Ziglag, down to Besor, back to Ziglag, Saul, Jonathan, and others are meeting their death on Mount Gilboa. This is the meanwhile. Once again, uh, you can translate that uh, initial word in verse 1 now. Uh, meanwhile, uh, it comes about that uh, David has returned from the defeat or the slaughter of the Amalekites, as the verse specifies. Now, what does David know? What does David know? Thinking about 1 Samuel 31, what does David know? He does not know anything. Very good. He has no knowledge of what happened on Gilboa. How do you know he knows nothing? Verse 4. Verse 4. Excellent. Very good. Look to the text to answer the questions. Verse 4 says that David wants to know what has happened. Tell me what has happened. Okay, so he does not know about chapter 31. What has our narrator done for us? We, the reader of his narrative, know what has happened. We've already come through chapter 31. David doesn't know what we know. Our narrator isn't playing games with us, but he's enabling us to be drawn into the drama of what David knows and doesn't know. All right, so why is this point crucial to 
the narrative. The fact that David does not know what has happened in chapter 31. Why is this crucial to this second account? He has only one witness to the events, 31. And that's the Amalekite, right? He has only one witness. He has only one Method or basis of proceeding, does he not? He can only proceed on the basis of what he is told, correct? He can only proceed on the basis of what he is told, not on the basis of what we, the readers, already know. So, We have to separate 31 from 2 Samuel 1 because we have to stand in David's boots in 2 Samuel 1. And David isn't standing in anybody's boots in 1 Samuel 31. Our narrator is drawing us into this dramatic difference, which is the crucial aspect of the distinction of the two narratives. Now... What is David told? He can only proceed on the basis of what he is told, and what is he told? Neither Margaret or Rich already said this earlier this evening. What is he told? He's told that Saul and his sons have been killed. He's told he's told a lie. He's told at least one lie. Let's see if he's told more than one lie. Is the Amalekite telling the truth about Saul's death? He is not telling the truth about Saul's death. We know that. Okay, At least at the crucial heart of Saul's death, he is not telling truth. Our narrator has told us the truth. Chapter 31 has told us the truth. The Amalekite does not tell us the truth. Our narrator has told us already. That's one reason for the distinction and the duplication. Our narrator wants to tell the truth, and then he wants to show the untrue teller. Notice, first, the significance of the phrase, the camp of Saul in verse 2 and the camp of Israel in verse 3. Now, why do I say notice their significance? These two similar phrases are emphasizing this Amalekite's attendance upon Saul in the camp of Israel. This Amalekite is attending upon Saul in the camp of Israel. And yet, this Amalekite is what? Verse 13, he is an alien. He is a non-Israelite. He has engaged himself to Saul and the camp of Israel as an Amalekite. Why? Is he trying to escape David's wrath upon the Amalekites? As David campaigned south of Ziglag down to Besor? Probably not. There's not enough time for that to have developed. 
But he has placed himself within the arena of Israel. He has placed himself within the arena of Israel's king. He has placed himself in the arena of the Lord's anointed, and he has placed himself in the arena of the law of the land of Israel. And so our disingenuous messenger is subject to the very same law that binds David. The very same law that binds David. And what is that law? Marge? Do not touch the Lord's anointed, verse 16. If David would not lift up his hand against Saul because he was the Lord's Mashiach, Messiah, chapter 24 and 26, then this alien may not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed either, for he has engaged himself and placed himself within the circle of Israel. And if he joins Israel... He places himself under the laws of Israel, the laws which restrain and constrain David and his men restrain and constrain him as well. Now, notice here also that whereas Saul's armor bearer would not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed in that he feared, chapter 31, verse 4, this Amalekite does not fear to take the life of the Lord's Anointed. He fears not to destroy the Lord's king. Thus, our Amalekite messenger has dared to do what neither David nor Saul's armor bearer would do to kill the Lord's anointed, or so it would appear. In reality, our Amalekite has lied to David. And let's take a break. And we'll come back and you can tell me where the lies are. All right, now we came to the question about the lies of the Amalekite messenger. And I asked you uh, before you refortified yourself whether any of you could point out the lies and so we'll, we'll take the lie or lies singular or plural and so we'll take uh, your best shot Rich? He only mentions uh, Jonathan as one of the sons that died. He misses the other two. Yes, I think that's incidental. Uh, so I don't think that is itself a, a defect in his account. Art? Well, in verse 6, this person claims that uh, the situation was that the chariots and riders were almost upon him and saw the spirit of his life. What actually happened was uh, Saul had been shot with an arrow, and he was, he was actually wounded. Possible variation uh, there, that's correct. Uh, we don't know whether the archers were in chariots or on horseback. It is possible that they were, but it is also possible that they were infantry. 
And so this is a possible embellishment. Okay, possible embellishment. Robert? I get the sense here that he uh, was hearing this secondhand from the soldiers who came back to the, when they were fleeing. They came back to the camp, and he's reconstructing it from hearsay. I don't think so. And uh, I don't think so because he uh, presents David with the crown and the bracelet from Saul. So he gets there before the bodies have been stripped because he has in his hand Saul's crown and bracelet. So he's gotten there very quickly after Saul's death. Usual that he would say, by chance I happen to be on the mountain. No, he's not an Arminian here. Uh, He's just simply saying, you know, by happenstance, I was crossing a field, and uh, that may be a contrivance or it may not be a contrivance. He may have been actually following close behind in order to take an opportunity. Well, let's begin with uh, whose place he places himself in. He puts himself in whose place? The armor bearer. He puts himself in the place of the armor bearer. Is he actually in the place of the armor bearer? No, he is not. So this is the first obvious lie that he tells. The armor bearer would not kill Saul in chapter 31, but this surrogate does kill Saul, or so he claims. In reality, we know that he did not because Saul killed himself. And yet, David judges from the liar's claim. Okay, So he's put himself in the armor bearer's place. He's not the armor bearer. He did not kill Saul. We know that David, however, is going to judge on the basis of his deceitful claim. Second, notice what he does in verse 9. He alters Saul's dying request by reducing it to death throes. Whereas the center of the chiasm in chapter 31 that you have on the first page of your handout is Saul's abhorrence of humiliation at the hands of the Philistines. While he yet drew breath, Saul did not say, slay me in order to get it over with, Saul said, slay me lest the uncircumcised abuse me in my death pangs. Consequently, we have at least two obvious glitches, at least two uh, apparent lies in the Amalekites' report. And yet, as someone indicated earlier this evening, not every element of the Amalekites' report is a deception. Much of it is an accurate Uh, uh, recounting of what we, the readers, know occurred in chapter 31. For instance, look at verse 4. The people of Israel did flee from the battle, as verse 1 of chapter 31 indicates. Many did fall down slain on the battlefield, as chapter 31, verse 1 indicates again. Saul and Jonathan were slain as well, as chapter 31, verses 2, 6, 7 and 12 indicate. And incidentally, Saul and Jonathan are mentioned alone a couple of times, and so therefore his report of that doesn't mean that he's left out the other sons, necessarily. Verse 6, 
Saul was pursued by the Philistines, 31.3. Verse 9, Saul did ask to be slain by another, 31.4. Verse 10, Saul did fall dead before the other one, 31.4 and 5. So his alteration of the event is not a complete fabrication. Still, it is a fabrication. Not a complete one, but he does fabricate essential points in order to promote himself. But David expresses deep grief. He tears his clothes. He mourns and weeps and fasts in verse 11 all day. The Amalekite came with signs of grief, torn clothes, dust on his head, verse 2. But he does not weep and mourn before David. He fawningly prostrates himself, verse 2, and then patronizingly flatters David with the phrase, My Lord, in verse 10. He is the picture of an opportunist. Coming upon the dead body of Saul with his crown and bracelet upon him and immediately concocts a plan to ingratiate himself to Saul's erstwhile enemy, namely David. Only he miscalculates. David does not rejoice at Saul's death. He grieves, and he grieves lamentably. And David does not reward our messenger for delivering Saul's crown and bracelet, the emblems of his royal authority. David condemns him for daring to slay the anointed of the Lord. David becomes prosecutor, judge, and jury in this case. And on the basis of the evidence presented, charges the Amalekite with a capital crime. You killed the Lord's anointed, verse 16. Then judges him guilty of that capital crime. Your mouth has testified against you. And sentence him to the capital punishment for a capital crime. Cut him down. Your blood is on your own head. A liar fabricates his own death sentence. He is caught in his own web of deceit by a righteous king. Remember last week, David's kingdom, his kingship now out in the open to do justice and equity. We know the Amalekite is a spinmeister. Our narrator dramatizes how the spinmeister snares himself and pays the ultimate penalty. 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1, 1 to 16 are complementary accounts of Saul's death. One, a true account. The other, a deceitful fabrication. And the fabricator is judged guilty of what he claims and pays the capital punishment for what he claims from the righteous king. Any questions about why we have two narratives now? Yes, Rich? Both the Amalekite had, had, you know... said, well, I, I'm going to change my story. I didn't really kill the king. I was just saying that to promote myself. Would he still probably been killed by David? Well, we can't... We, 
We can't speculate on that because the record doesn't tell us. And David says his blood's on his own head because he's condemned himself out of his own mouth. So I could say, regardless of whether he tried to change his story at the end, David's proceeding with the judgment that he first got. So be careful what you first testify to. Yes, Scott. Have you fathomed the reason why there would be this kind of deceiver telling a deceitful story about the death of Saul? In other words, is it parallel to anything else about the character of Saul? What does it reveal about Saul? Is that that Saul is a paying hypocrite, and this man, you know, what what could be going? I don't know. I haven't gone that far. Uh, I I haven't gone beyond the fact that I think that he is an opportunist. And the way he patronizes and prostrates himself before David in a fawning way is indication of how he is trying to curry favor with David, ingratiate himself on the basis of the trophies that he has brought, thinking that David will welcome these and reward him. Um, So I'm, I'm stuck personally at that level of analysis. I'm not reflecting upon whether he's a mirror of Saul himself. Ling? Um, first of all, he's a foreigner, or he's an alien in Israel. Uh, second of all, the curse of destruction, which is upon the Amalekites from back in the Pentateuch. Uh, third, the fact that Saul had failed to destroy the Amalekites when he had been told to do so. And fourth, David's campaign against them. Uh, in other words, all that adds up to a large check mark against an Amalekite uh, in this narrative. Now, whether it is specifically that, uh, I'm not persuaded because I believe that his being an Amalekite in the service of Saul, in the camp of Israel, is placing himself under the aura of Israel's king, now David, and the law of the kingdom. That's what I think is more crucial to David's procedure than the fact that he's a foreigner. But I won't take away the fact that the Amalekite has always got a check mark against them in the history of redemption. Yeah, but he doesn't know that. At least I don't think he does. Okay, so, but I mean, he knows that. As David doesn't know what happened in 31, he doesn't know what happened in 29. But he knows there's a very big check mark against the Amalekites in the history of Israel. It seems kind of. I mean, it seems kind so of... So has he been living by the seat of his pants for years? <laughs> okay, he takes one more gamble? I don't know. I mean, this is speculation. But the the point about him repeating, David repeats this. Who are you? Where are you from? He says he's an Amalekite. The point of him repeating it, I think, is David emphasizing the fact, okay, you've come to my judge in court. You're under my authority. I'm going to judge you on the basis of the law of the nation of Israel, which is touch not my anointed. But I certainly would encourage you to speculate further if you wish. And, uh, you know, I'm willing to entertain all further speculations, reasonable or unreasonable. Yes, yes, that is an irony. That is an irony. So the narrator brings back the irony in the event as well. I don't deny that. 
All right, in conclusion then, the Israelite monarchy under King Saul was inaugurated in conflict with the Philistines. The monarchy of King Saul concludes with conflict with the Philistines. 1 Samuel 13, verses 1 Samuel 31. Saul's reign as king of Israel represents no advance over the perennial enemy of the people of God. The beginning of his reign as the end of his reign. The end of his reign, no advance over the beginning of his reign. There is no linear advance under Saul. His house is removed from leadership in Israel. Even as the death of the priest Eli's sons ends his leadership of Israel and the death of the prophet Samuel's sons together with his death ends his leadership of Israel. Neither the house of Eli nor the house of Samuel nor the house of Saul endures to rule over the people of God. At the end of 1 Samuel 31, God has prepared a new king for his people, a king who will display, though not perfectly, God's own heart unto his children. David's succession to the throne of Israel represents a redemptive historical advance in the drama of salvation. He will reveal provisionally what the eschatological king of Israel will incarnate consummately. The death of Saul and the enthronement of David is the dawn of a new age, a better age, though not the final age in the history of redemption. A better shepherd is coming. A better king is coming. A better David is coming. But David is now in the open position of showing us in measure and provisionally, though not perfectly, what that king and that kingdom which is coming is like. Any questions to that point or any comments before we go into Legos? Now, this, uh, I'm sorry, Scott. Is there any kind of hinging going on between the two kingdoms with the double narrative? I mean, do we find that at any other point? I think the contrastive relationship is a kind of a swing point, yes. I don't think it necessarily is hinging upon this event alone. I think the narrator has been making that contrast as it's unfolded in the upward spiral of David. And I do believe that chapters 29 and 30 are more of David breaking out into the clear open of the distinctive character of his kingdom, particularly where he exercises equity and justice in the distribution of the spoils of the Amalekites to his own uh, troops. But we are on the upward swing in opposition from the downward spiral. Now, Hebrew poetry or Hebrew prosody, which is a technical name for analyzing poetry, whether it's Hebrew or otherwise, (coughs) has uh, (coughs) perhaps uh, (coughs) the greatest Hebraist of uh, this generation uh, (coughs) as uh, one of its great uh, advocates, and that is J.P. Fockelman from (coughs) the uh, University of Leiden in uh, the Netherlands. (coughs) Fockelman... (coughs) 
is a remarkable Hebrew scholar and has written a popular book called Reading Biblical Poetry. He's actually written a number of books that I've reviewed. If you go on to krooks.com and look under my book reviews, you can see my reviews of Fockelman's works. Uh, But this book has been written for a lay audience. It doesn't require that you know any Hebrew, and he explains the kind of thing that I'm going to go over and outline uh, a little later this evening. And here is a way that you could read through it uh, with illustrations uh, on several uh, several psalms. Uh, I recommend him because he is the most penetrating Hebrew scholar on the Psalter and Hebrew poetry uh, in our day. He's also written a remarkable commentary on First and Second Samuel, uh, which from which I have benefited greatly in these presentations. Uh, I want to note his more detailed work on the Psalter, which is contained in these volumes called the Major Poems of the Hebrew Bible. There are actually four volumes in this series. Volumes two and three are a complete Hebrew analysis of all 150 psalms. You must know Hebrew in order to uh, use these, although a lay reader could use them and skip the Hebrew. Uh, you, you would miss some things, but you would get other things. And then he's written this final volume in which he lays out the structure of all the Hebrew Psalms in the Hebrew text. This is the conclusion of this work. Now, you'll note that I said volumes two and three of this series, Major Poems of the Hebrew Bible, He also has in volume one of this series, Deuteronomy 32 and Job chapters one and two. And then in volume four, he finishes the poetry of the book of Job. So he's done a great deal of work on Hebrew poetry. Uh, How I long to see him live long enough to do a poetic analysis of one of the Hebrew prophets. That would be the next step in his remarkable career. Now, although I respect him and regard him as a great Hebraist, there is no evidence that he is an Orthodox Christian believer. Uh, that may be, I may be misrepresenting him. He may be a very liberal Christian believer. <clears throat> In his book on uh, reading biblical narrative, he has some comments on the New Testament which are a little bit shocking, <clears throat> particularly to Orthodox Christianity. But nonetheless, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't <clears throat> remove the fact that he has this tremendous insight into Hebrew. He actually went to Israel to study Hebrew in uh, in, in the, the uh, Jewish centers there, uh, which is one of the ways you learn Hebrew best. Uh, you go to Tel Aviv or you go to Jerusalem and you sit and uh, you or you learn to uh, to understand Hebrew uh, lectures and then you understand how to read. Hebrew newspaper and Yiddish and modern Hebrew, and then you understand how to read the Hebrew Bible, and then you learn to understand how to think like a Jew, how to think like an Israelite, how to think like a Hebrew, how to think in pictures. See, Semitic world thinks in pictures. A Jewish mind thinks in pictures. And so you're looking for these uh, these, these picture patterns uh, in in even in the Hebrew poems. All right. So Falkelman is the bee's knees. Now, uh, illustrating the Lego approach to Hebrew prosody based in part on 2 Samuel 1, what does Falkelman outline? He begins by analyzing sounds. In other words, he reads the Hebrew poem out loud. He reads it to himself. 
And as he sounds out the Hebrew text, he starts to listen for sounds that repeat themselves. And that's the first building block for breaking down the structure of a Hebrew poem. Get the pattern of the sounds of the Hebrew text. Start to think about why the poet uses this sequence of sounds. All right, now the second point above hearing the sound of the text is the cadence of the text. Now, Hebrew poetry doesn't have meter. There's no iambic pentameter. There's no trochaic meter. There's no meter as we understand Western, whether Greco-Roman or otherwise, uh, rhymed or metered poetry. But, as Fockelman points out, Hebrew poetry has a beat. It has a cadence. So one of the reasons he reads it out loud to hear the sound is he starts to experience or to sense the cadence or the beats. That means that the syllables in the Hebrew words, the syllables in the Hebrew phrases, start to ring in his mind. He starts to hear if there's any pattern, if there's any consistent pattern of, uh, of, of beat or cadence in the Hebrew text as he sounds it out. All right, So he's looking for the, the syllables and the breakdown of the text into its internal cadence. And that means that he begins to count words. Count words that have a similar cadence, a similar beat. Count words that have a similar sound. He begins to count them up and to uh, arrange them or to, uh, to, uh, to look at how they occur in sequence. And most often, he finds that the sequence of the words in the original Hebrew poem have a kind of cadence based upon the sound of the syllables, which is very regular. You might have in the first kola a a three-beat cadence syllable. In other words, all the words are using a kind of three-beat cadence. And so he begins to to isolate that and to uh, graph that out in the sense of separating it uh, as a fundamental uh, structure for the number of words that have that cadence and that sound. All right, now once he has uh, arrived at the number of words that have a, shall we say, a, 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 a parallel a cadence or beat, then he looks at versets or what he calls cola. Now, if you look at a psalm, you usually see that the psalm has two lines. A verse has two lines. Okay, so he's saying that a verset is one of those two lines in a verse. He calls it a cola. Okay, then two colas make a verse. So a bicola, two versets make a verse. So he builds up from the sound to the beats to the words to the colas to the bicolas or to the verse. Okay, so now he's arranged the verses according to the pattern of uh, uh, word count, syllable syllable count, cadence, and sound. And then the next thing, of course, is there are more verses in a psalm than just uh, one. Then to uh, 
to gather together the verses that have the same similar pattern into blocks of strophes, maybe three or four verses in a block. Okay, this is a building block approach. Okay, so from verses to blocks of verses in a strophe, and then larger than strophes, several strophes, several strophe blocks in a stanza, stanzas that build into a larger section, and finally the whole poem itself analyzed. Beginning at the bottom, beginning with the sounds, to the cadence, to the count of the words, to the versets or the colas, to the verses or bicolas, to the larger blocks of verses, strophes, larger blocks of strophes, stanzas, larger blocks of stanzas, namely sections, and finally to the poem as a whole. Extremely complicated, extremely tedious work, but he's done it all. It's all done. And as we teach the Hebrew Psalter in our Psalms and Wisdom course, We've been heavily dependent upon Fockelman. Uh, we have some questions about his word count sometimes, his syllable count. We're not sure how he gets what he gets all the time, but that's a minority of the cases in which we examine it. Uh, one of the things that we feel is that maybe we may say 85 to 95% of the time he's right on the money, and the other 10 to 15% we can sort out by a discussion some other time. But he's done the groundwork. He's, he's broken, he's broken the ice, he's laid the foundation for further uh, research and a study of this very fascinating pattern of Hebrew prosodic structure. All right, so this, uh, this wonderful uh, way of working from the bottom up is a way of explaining why the psalm is constructed the way it is, why it's written the way it is in the Hebrew text. Now, obviously, if you're going to deal with what he's dealing with, apart from the popular book he wrote, you're going to have to be able to read the Hebrew text. Another good reason uh, why uh, seminaries ought to require the Hebrew language. And Reformed seminaries these days, which are dropping the requirement of the biblical languages, are simply slitting themselves by the throat because they're sending people out into the church who can't read the original text and aren't going to be able to handle this kind of research this kind of discussion of the text, and they're not going to be able to gain the insights into the original Hebrew text that we're gaining as a result of this kind of work. This is wonderful stuff, regardless of whether he's an Orthodox believer or not. He forces me to think as an Orthodox believer and makes me think about the Hebrew text as an Orthodox believer. He makes me think about the way the Hebrew text is arranged and structured as an Orthodox believer. He's good for me, just like all the liberals were good for Voss. They made him more Orthodox. All right. We want experts on the primary documents, on the original text. That's what we want, because that's what we want to penetrate. Because that's the source, particularly the scriptures, Hebrew and Greek scriptures. That's the source of our understanding of the knowledge of God. He's revealed himself in these structures. If You can see, if, if Falkman's right about this, this is the way God inspired it. See, if he's right, God inspired it this way. We know that. He may not believe it, but that's what is done. That's what God said. He's just to be unpacking the mind of God for us in terms of Hebrew structure. Well, good on him. More power to him. May his tribe increase. Give us more like him. Tragically, they're not going to come from the reform camp because you haven't got reformed people that can do this kind of work. <laughs> they don't care about it. Sadly. Well, anyway, so much for politics. All right. Now, let's take a look at the next category there. 
the elements of Hebrew poetry, and we'll illustrate this from the uh, lament for Saul and Jonathan from 1 Samuel 1, 19-27. Now, in the old days, they talked about Hebrew parallelism. When I say in the old days, that's before 1980, roughly speaking. 1980, there came a revolution in the study of Hebrew poetry. It came from a number of people, including a guy named Robert Alter, who was at the University of California, Berkeley, and James Kugel, who was at Harvard, who wrote a number of books in which they challenged this uh, traditional view of Hebrew poetic parallelism. So... I'll use the word parallelism, but I prefer the word symmetry, and you'll see why. Let's take the example of symmetrical lines or symmetrical colas. Example, 2 Samuel 1.20, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, which is parallel to the next clause, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Now, that is not synonymous parallelism, which is what alter and Kugel and others began to observe beginning around 1980. They began to observe that this is not strictly synonymous. That is, these aren't synonyms. They are symmetrical parallels, but they are not synonyms. And so what Alter and Kugel and others suggested is we've got to read them in terms of an expansion. Now, I've already alluded to this in our our first presentation on 1 Samuel 16, But notice how it works out here in this poetic text. What is A? The daughters of Philistines, of the Philistines. What is more than A? That is, what is B? The daughters of the uncircumcised. Now you'll notice that that is not synonymous parallelism. We are told more in the symmetrical line. The Philistines are uncircumcised. That's an expanded or additional idea. They are not bound under the covenant sign. You see, now we've enlarged upon the the notion of what a Philistine is. And consequently, this what is A and what is more than A, namely B, is an additive dimension to what the writer is attempting to communicate. He's not saying the same thing exactly again. He's saying something which adds to the dimension of what he has first Describe. Same thing is true in uh, the verb there. What is A? Rejoice. But it was what is more than A is exalt. In other words, they're going to rejoice, express their happiness, but what is more than their happiness is their exaltation. They're going to triumph in this. They're going to jump up and down and beat their breath that they're number one because of this. You see, the added idea of exaltation is more rich than the, uh, than the, just the, the uh, concept of rejoice. And so this, uh, this reading the line or reading the parallels in terms of expansion, uh, expansion, addition, uh, enriching, deepening the meaning of the text is what uh, comes out of this, uh, what is A and what is more than A, namely B. All right, now the inclusio feature. We've talked about inclusios before uh, as we've looked at the life of David in 1 Samuel 16 and following. Now notice in this lament how he uses an inclusio or a bracketing device at the beginning and ending of the lament. 
he envelops or he includes the whole of his poem between an opening line in verse 19 and a closing line in verse 27, which are exactly alike. The inclusio, how are the mighty fallen, envelops, brackets, frames this lament of David. He ends as he begins. He begins as he ends. He symmetrically does exactly at the beginning and the end in order to close in the drama of the poem between the elements of the inclusio. It's a framing device. You need to look for it. You need to check it out. You can find it in the Psalter, particularly Psalms 146 through 150, which all begin and end with an inclusio. Every one of those five Psalms, 146 to 50, begins with hallelujah and ends with hallelujah. They are inclusio Psalms. They close the Psalter with the praise of God at the beginning and end. All right, now we talked about chiasms before, but we have in this lament a small mirror chiasm. You notice in verse 22 that the name Jonathan is used and followed by Saul in that same verse. But in verse 23, the name Saul begins is placed first in the verse and Jonathan is placed second. That is a chiastic arrangement. In other words, what David is doing, because a chiasm is a mirror device. Okay, You can imagine it looking at the words Jonathan and Saul in a mirror. If you put them up in a mirror and looked at the reflection, it would be Saul and Jonathan. Okay, so the mirror device gives you the complete portrait. Okay, consequently, David is giving you the complete picture of Saul and Jonathan. He's mirroring them in one another. And he's doing it in order to focus upon his grief for them both. Now, the word assonance means the repetition of the same vowel sound. And here, uh, you have to have the Hebrew text in order to hear this or to note it. But let me use a phrase, and uh, I think that you can hear the assonance. Shir Hasherim. Shir Hasherim. You hear the same sound? Shir Hasherim. Okay, that's the title of the Song of Solomon in the Hebrew text, and it is an assonantial title. It means the most superlative of songs. It means the song of songs. In Hebrew, shir hasherim. You hear the sound of the similar, uh, the similar notes, the similar uh, sounds that, uh, that come to your ear as you pronounce it. All right, so that is a common, that's one of the things that Falkman is doing when he's reading the uh, Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poem for the sound. He's listening for assonance. He's also listening for alliteration. Alliteration is the repetition of the same consonant in a Hebrew poem. Now, uh, why didn't I say vowels? Well, because there aren't any vowels in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language is a consonantal language. There are 22 consonants in the Hebrew language. Well, how did I get sheer hasharim? <laughs> because of a bunch of Masoretes in about 1000 AD, a bunch of Jewish scribes who actually started putting little marks in the Hebrew Bible so that, they know, so that the, the future generations would know how to pronounce it. 
And so they developed a little uh, system of dots and, and lines uh, which indicate how you put the vowel into the text. Now, the Masoretes weren't infallible. It's an interesting discussion about whether the vowel points were inspired came up in the 16th century. But nonetheless, the Masoretes weren't inspired. But, of course, they were relying upon a long-standing Hebrew tradition of how you vocalized, how you sounded out the vowels in the unvocalized Hebrew text. They could look at the, at the consonants and they could say the vowels automatically. So then they drafted this little system of dots and lines, etc., in order to help others remember how to pronounce it. All right, now I'm going to read uh, a, a Hebrew line for you. Actually, I'm going to read 2 Samuel 1.20 in part. And I want you to listen for the repetition of the same consonants. The same consonants. Okay? Here we go. al tagidu. Bagad, all tabishiru, bahutsov. Did you hear the repeated, repeated sound? Okay. All tegidu, bagat, all tabishiru, bahutsov. Ah, be, ah, te, be. Ah, te, be. Okay? You hear the assonance, the alliteration rather. He repeats in those first six words, which are translated, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets. He repeats the very same initial consonants. It's an alliteration. It's a device in which he is using a system of sound cadence to provide a repetitive series of uh, identifying, uh, 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 identifying sounds, something that would draw the reader into the drama of the Hebrew text in the Hebrew words. Now, that's not the only place where he uses alliteration in that verse. It's actually a verse which is remarkable for its alliterative pattern. But in the first six words... You see a threefold alliterative repetition. An ah sound that occurs twice, a t sound or a t sound that occurs twice, and a b or b sound that occurs twice. He repeats them in, 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 in sequence. He repeats them in cadence. He repeats them in words that carry those same alliterative qualities. All right, now... We talked about building up a uh, Hebrew poem in terms of colons and bicolons. And here in uh, verse 19 of 1 Samuel 2, we begin with a tricolon. We begin with three verse sets before we move to a bicolon in verse 20. And so we break down the rest of the poem in terms of its building blocks. Tricolon, bicolon, 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 then tricolon in verse 23, bicolon in verse 24, and finally it concludes, uh, bicolon in 24 and 25, and finally it concludes with a tricolon plus a bicolon, verse 26 and verse 27. Now, I outline these 
bicolons and tricolons in order to now begin to work on the internal meaning of each of them. And therefore, I'm going to break them down and then begin to look for assonance, alliteration, other structural patterns, including chiasms, etc. And Lord willing, next week I'll come back and do this in greater detail. But to conclude this evening, I've given some possible structural suggestions as to how this poem has been arranged. Now, each of these suggestions is a, a possibility. That is, it is a uh, it, it's my uh, attempt to uh, present a coherent structure for uh, all twenty, uh, all the verses from nineteen to twenty-seven. None of these structures are dogmatic or final; they are tentative, uh, subject to further reflection and research. But nonetheless, here are some proposals for how David has put together his lament. First of all, if we group together verses 19, 20, and 21, with a question mark about 19, but if we group together 19, 20, and 21, we have the inauguration or the uh, uh, beginning or the inception of the lament itself. Tell it not in gas. That's, that's a phrase of lamentation. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain fall upon you. Okay? This is a uh, this is a uh, expression of grief and sorrow. Now he concludes in verses twenty four to twenty seven in the same way. Daughters of Israel weep over Saul, uh, uh, lament, uh, give uh, give your tears in remembrance of Saul. I am distressed for you, Jonathan, my brother. Verse twenty six. He is grieved. So at the beginning and ending of this uh, poem. We have uh, uh, elegiac lament, formal lamentation, expression of sorrow, grief, tears, weeping, etc. But then we have the eulogy of Jonathan and Saul. In fact, we have the eulogy in 22 and 23 where we have the chiasm, where Jonathan and Saul appear in verse 22 and then Saul and Jonathan appear in verse 23. The only place where those names appear in mirror-like or reverse structural position. So the center of this structure is the eulogy where he commends them, okay, where he talks about uh, what they had done, uh, which was glorious to them and beloved and pleasant to him, and yet he frames it with a lament of grief and sorrow weeping etc., uh, for their loss. So here's a very simple uh, structural outline of how the poem uh, works, of why David has put it together this way, the symmetry of the lament at beginning and end, which sandwiches or features the eulogy of Jonathan and Saul at the center. All right, one possibility. Now, the second <coughs> suggestion on your handout is to look at the occurrence of the names in the poem. We begin with a Hebrew term, a tzevi, in verse 19, which I put a double question mark before because it's translated beauty in verse 19 in English. And it doesn't look as if it refers to a 
personal name. Whereas in verse 21, we pick up the personal name of Saul. And then in 22, we have Jonathan and Saul. 23, we have Saul and Jonathan. We've noticed that chiastic reversal before. In verse 24, we have Saul's name mentioned again. And finally, we have Jonathan twice in verses 25b and 26. So in looking at a structure which we observe the occurrence of the names, we have parallels between Saul and Saul, 21 and 24, b and b prime. We have parallels before Jonathan, between Jonathan and Saul, Saul and Jonathan, and chiastic parallel c and c prime. But then we have Zebi in verse 19, and Jonathan twice over in 25b and 26. Hmm. I wonder if the beauty of Israel slain on high places is Jonathan, Jonathan. Well, that's a structure which may solve a exegetical dilemma. What does he refer to? Who is the beauty of Israel? Okay. Well, the beauty of Israel structurally, as we look at it, is his dear friend, Jonathan, whose name he doubles at the end of the poem. Now, the third suggestion for a structural outline is to look at the currents of the phrase slain on the high places and how are the mighty fallen. Those parallels occur close to the beginning of the poem and close to the end of it. However, they don't include the whole poem because verses 26 and 27 are left out, which would mean that this structure does not take into account the complete pattern of the poem. It only observes parallels between verse 19 and verse 25. Therefore, it's probably the weakest of the suggestions though it does draw attention to the fact that there are duplications of those phrases in 19 and 25. Finally, suggestion number four takes a clue from suggestion number three, beginning with slain on the high places, and now begins to look at what falls in between. As it it occurs, There are more parallels as we move from 19 to 20, 21 to 22 to 24, etc. And we, in fact, have a framing chiasm which centers upon the weaponry of Saul, his shield and his sword, sandwiching Jonathan's bow. With the daughters of the Philistines standing over against the daughters of Israel, and the repetition of slain on the high places and how the mighty are fallen. Once again, verses 26 and 27 are omitted from this structure, and therefore we can say that it is only partially successful in graphing or outlining the entire poem, but nonetheless it is part of advancing uh, our observation of how the symmetrical parallels do uh, fall out in similar lines uh, in, in a number of structural suggestions. All right, now we've done nothing about the meaning of the poem yet, but this is the grunt work by which you begin 
to explore that meaning. Um, You begin to ask these kinds of questions of the text. You begin to play around with these structural outlines, and then you begin to ask yourself, what is the theological point of the structural outline? What is this most successful explanation of the theology of the entire poem? And we'll attempt to address that next week as we return to this poem to begin uh, and, uh, and look at it in more of its theological depth. But here is, uh, here is a way of attacking uh, structure and meaning of a Hebrew poem. Now, uh, that may intimidate you a little bit. That's more than you bargained for. Uh, but nonetheless, that's the kind of work that needs to be done in continuing to uh, penetrate into the depths of the riches of the Word of God, particularly the depths of the riches of the Psalter, the poems of the Bible, not just the Psalms or poems, but much of the Hebrew prophets is poems. So this type of approach to Hebrew prosody is also applicable to the uh, prophetic books of the Old Testament. Lots and lots of poetry that we have to analyze and uh, look at very carefully and in depth. Any questions or comment, Margaret? You know your student Benji taught your job, don't you? Yes, I do. Good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad Benji is uh, working on uh, not only Fackelman but the Hebrew text. Ling. I think the structural analysis can help you with the translation of the psalm. There may be nuances of a parallel pattern or a duplicate occurrence uh, which will enrich or deepen or actually refine the translation of uh, of a Hebrew word. I'm not talking here about, uh, you know, vocabulary that we need to have Ugaritic uh, to illustrate or Akkadian or any other kind of Semitic uh, language. But I'm talking here about the fact that you're looking for patterns of resemblance, patterns of symmetry. And then that helps you arrange your translation in a more accurate or uh, more uh, expansive way. So, yes, I think it can be helpful in translation. Go ahead. survey of Fackelman and in your knowledge of the various translations out there, <laughs> can you tell me which one you think is uh, the best uh, translation? There it is, the New American Standard. You still believe that that's best? Yeah, I, I still believe that the marginal readings, uh, even where Fackelman's making his own translations and making his own decisions about uh, structural patterning. I think in many ways you can turn to your New American Standard and follow his Hebrew discussions line by line and virtually be right in the vocabulary that the New American Standard uses. And the advantage of the New American Standard is when they use a variant, they put it in the margin. So you have the option of looking at the marginal reading and choosing what you think is the best one in terms of the context. No, dynamic equivalence, as we know, is commentary. It is not translation. It is expanding upon words that they think have in a particularly uh, particular meaning, even to the point of leaving out the literal parts of the text in Greek and Hebrew, which, in my opinion, is just unconscionable. I mean, I don't, I don't know how evangelicals ever bought it. Not translation at all. It's interpretation. It's just like the Schofield Bible. Only the notes aren't at the bottom of the page. The notes are right in the in the NIV itself. You know, read the text. You're not reading what the Greek says. You're not reading what the Hebrew says. 
Not a literal translation. Go ahead. It sounds better in the English. <laughs> um, of course, whether how how far that affects the meaning um, is it would be very interesting of a question when we're talking about structural analysis, like what Bachman's doing. So we've got to go back to the drawing board and re-examine our principles of translating Hebrew poetry. But we begin with the text. We don't begin with a paraphrase of the text. Yes, Scott? Uh, I was wondering if your point about the importance of understanding the Hebrew uh, structure of the poetry, how that reflects on understanding the narrative as well. Because I'm assuming just by looking at this in general, that perhaps by looking at the poetry, we get a better sense of what is central to David's own lament. And that may reflect upon the narrative. Can you Yes, uh, uh, let me try to draw that out next week as I look at this poem in more detail. But you're right. Uh, the, the center of his lament is also going to be the center of the narrative of the death of Saul and Jonathan. I think there was another. Rich? Can, can the structure, especially the sounds that he comes up with, uh, give support to the uh, ball points that are suggested? Uh, indirectly, yes. Indirectly, yes, uh, because the vowel points aren't inspired, yet we do think that they're reliable. Okay, we, In the most part, we think they're reliable. Uh, no liberal or conservative scholar has said we're going to jettison the Masoretic vowel points uh, because they believe that they actually go way back into uh, Jewish tradition, into the biblical period. So they've been reliably transmitted. The sounds have been reliably transmitted from generation to generation. Uh, which doesn't mean that every vowel point is accurate, but nonetheless, the, the, the gist is that the majority of them are. And consequently, as you're listening to the sound, and it sounds like it has this cadence, this, this, this regular beat to it, yes, then it does confirm the Masoretes have done a proper job, at least uh, uh, ostensibly. Does Bachman take issue with any of the uh, vowel points? That are- uh, he, does, he does occasionally. Okay, he, he will he will he will change readings sometimes, and this is a place where I'm not going to defend him at every point. <laughs> no scholar is infallible, uh, not this one either. So <laughs> this is all work which is uh, in process, you know, under construction, as they say on the internet. Uh, we, we're, we're building to a deeper understanding of the Word of God. The job here is to understand God's mind as it's revealed in the text. That's the job. And understanding structure and cadence and so on, that's part of the mind of God. It's the way he revealed it. Okay, well, see you next week, Lord willing.